Tonight we're going to talk about Psalm 126, and uh, here's why. Um, I think, I know, there's a joy that can last longer than an adrenaline rush, and I know there's a kind of joy that can even invade sadness. It can coexist with sadness. There's a kind of joy that can soar and sail even when the wind's not blowing in your life. There's a kind of joy that doesn't have an expiration date on it. And it can actually survive the monotony of life, the routine. I think few of us know this joy. Not many of us have found this joy, but all of us are looking for it. And so Psalm 126 is a psalm that puts an X on the map. And it says, if you are looking, if you want true and lasting joy that doesn't evaporate or slip through your fingers the second you touch it, dig here. And so if you're looking for this true and lasting joy, there's three things that you have to do. You have to know what happened yesterday. You have to know what tomorrow holds. And you sow seeds today knowing that the harvest will come. Those are written in your bulletin. I'll explain them in a minute. But if you want to find that true and lasting joy, you have to know what happened yesterday. You have to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, and you have to work today because you know the outcome already. Uh, why don't you stand up? Thankfully, this week we have a shorter psalm. <laughs> This is the word of God. It's fresh. It meets you where you are tonight. And so listen. Psalm 126, a psalm of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion or Israel, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues filled with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. That's the name of a desert in Israel. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Let's pray. Father, we spend our lives searching for joy and we maybe have come up empty or we've just had little glimpses of it. You are the joyful one. You are the infinitely joyful one. You are the one bounding over, overflowing with joy and you have been for all of time. And you share your joy with us. So tonight would you persuade our suspicious hearts that you actually are joyful and that you're willing to share your joy. Would you show us how Jesus is essential to being joyful? And we ask this in your name. Amen. Why don't you take a seat? Thanks. So on the morning of March 8th, 2014, this is two years and a month ago, a filled up Boeing 777 took off in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, on its way to Beijing. Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, you might be familiar with it. This was a routine flight. This was like the El Paso to Phoenix flight. It was routine. They did it tons of times every single day. It was simple. It was supposed to be quick. The odd thing was is that flight never showed up on time. And it's now two years later and that flight hasn't shown up anywhere. No trace of it. No trace of the 239 people who were on board that morning on a routine couple-hour flight to Beijing to this date, people from all over the world, countries from all over the world have sent their ships, their planes, their submarines, their sonar, their helicopters, their military experts, and they've repositioned their satellites 
to scour 1.7 million square miles of ocean floor and ocean surface. The first year of this two-year search alone, the first year alone, they invested $100 million of of manpower and man hours searching for this jet. Uh, And they haven't found it yet. Just a few months ago, little tiny pieces of debris, two or three of these pieces, washed up on the beach of Mozambique and Madagascar. And whoever found it was like, hey, government, you should look at this. Maybe this is part of that wreckage. And so they took a couple of weeks to test it, to search for serial numbers or any markings on it. And just yesterday they came out and said, one of those pieces, they're almost certain belonged to that plane. And so we're two years after a filled up 777 disappears. Two years later, all we know is that that flight existed and that it probably crashed because there's little pieces of it washing up or starting to wash up on beaches thousands of miles away from where it disappeared. People have called the search for flight 370 the longest, most expensive, and most elusive search in history. I would say it's the second longest, second most expensive, second most elusive search in human history. I think the search for joy has been longer, cost more, and been harder to find. And I think there's more similarities than just that. I think we know this thing called joy exists We've thrown our best technology at it, trying to get it, trying to make it last longer. Um, And at best, I think we've had little pieces of debris of joy wash up into our lives. Little happy moments, little bursts of joy, but it's like a charred remain of it. That's all we have. We don't see the whole thing. We don't have it. We can't get our fingers on it. We're still searching for it, investing our time, our money, our work, our technology, trying to get at it all trying to get this elusive thing called joy. There's this old English pastor named Leonard Ravenhill. He said, entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography called Surprised by Joy, he was kind of cataloging his time from being an atheist who was trying to do research to disprove God, who actually met the living God. In his autobiography, he says that he wonders if whether all the pleasures that we chase aren't just substitutes for joy. He's wondering if really all the stuff that we're after in our lives isn't just kind of a cheap knockoff or substitute of this thing called joy that is so elusive and so costly and so hard to find. And so some of you are still looking for this, and some of you are at 18, 19, 20, 23 years of your life, and you're like, I've spent my whole life looking for this thing called joy, and I've only had tiny little bursts of it, and you've thrown in the towel. Maybe you've resigned yourself to kind of a joyless existence kind of just getting by, steady Eddie. Some of you are still really looking for it. You're like really hardcore chasing after joy anywhere you can find a little glimmer of it. But no matter whether you're still looking for it or you've thrown in the towel, we should know what it is we're looking for, right? If something's lost, you have to know what it is you're looking for or you can't find it. And so maybe you've heard preachers before try to do this like comparing contrast of joy and happiness. I'm not going to go into that in 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 a ton of detail, but we should at least understand the difference, right? Here's what joy is not. Joy, the way the Bible talks about it, joy is not something you can marry or date your way into. 
You can't find that special somebody or that soulmate and then be joyful because you found them. Joy is not something you can purchase. Joy is not on (laughs) Amazon.com. Joy can't be delivered to you. You can't binge watch your way into joy. Um, You can't diet or exercise your way into joy. There's not a magic number that pops up on the scale and then you're joyful because you hit the weight. Joy is, not some, joy is not another level that you'll attain when you beat the next level of the video game you've been on lately. Joy is not waiting for you there. Joy is not something you accept a bit into. It's not something that you get invited to. You can't be hired into joy. There's no dream job that if you get it or dream internship, if you get it, you will be joyful. And you can't work your way into joy. Ambition won't get you there. Dedication, hard work won't get you there. Joy is not a trait you're born with. Joy isn't positive thinking. Joy isn't extroversion. Joy isn't being a people person who's always happy. That's not joy. Joy is not native to broken, fallen human beings, which is what all of us share in common. And so contrary to all the little quotes that you'll find in books, you can't look inside. Look within to find joy because it's not there. Um, Joy is a gift. Joy is a fruit. And it's different from happiness in this way. Happiness is a good thing. Lauren asked me earlier, are you happy? And I was like, yes, I'm happy. Um, Happiness is a good thing. We don't need to bash happiness. But we need to understand what happiness is and what it's not. Happiness is fragile. Happiness is vulnerable to a thousand threats. Um, Happiness has a short shelf life. It's there one second and then it's gone. This is, if you're searching for happiness at the bar, there's always a last call and a 2 a.m. where you got to drive back home. Uh, If you're searching for happiness in the dating relationship, there's always a honeymoon that ends and reality kicks in. I'm going to have to work to love this person. If you're looking for happiness in a vacation or summer break, August always comes around or the trip back home always comes around. Happiness is fragile. And the reason happiness isn't the be-all, end-all of life, that great place that we've arrived, is because we all know it has a short shelf life. It's going to end. We all know it. You eat an awesome meal. You know the next morning you're eating cereal. Or you know that's just a -a once-in-a-lifetime meal or something like that. Happiness, I think, is the fast food form of joy. It's accessible. It's everywhere. It's inexpensive. And it doesn't support human life. (laughs) Joy, on the other hand, is the best restaurant in New York City. It's hard to get, it's hard to get into. It's very expensive, Um, but you'll never forget it. Unlike happiness, joy is not fragile, it's indestructible. Unlike happiness, joy is not vulnerable. It's, um, It's durable. Joy doesn't vanish when circumstances change, it stay. It stays around. And so joy is like military-grade happiness. Joy is happiness with a bulletproof vest on. Joy is happiness with a lifetime, no questions asked, guarantee, warranty against defect or damage or theft or dissatisfaction. Joy is like happiness with all of its vaccines. Joy is indestructible. Joy isn't circumstantial. Everything in your life can turn around and you can still be joyful. Not so with happiness. That's the difference. I refuse to find a new illustration for joy. I'm doubling down on what I've told you many times before. Joy is Bilbo Baggins, 
birthday party in the Lord of the Rings. If you want to know what the Bible means when it talks about joy, it's like fireworks going off. Everybody is arm in arm dancing. Music is playing everywhere. Everybody's glasses are full, like glasses are clinking. People are laughing. They're singing. They're dancing. There's performances going on. Pops of firecrackers all around. Nobody in that moment wanted that moment to end ever, right? And nobody who's seen that moment. I mean, we would, we would give anything to jump in the screen just for a minute and be at Bilbo Baggins' birthday party to be that joyful, that carefree, lost in the moment, indestructible joy, joy that couldn't have been affected by any of the outside circumstances. The Israelites here in Psalm 126 describe it in a similar way. If you ask them, what is joy? They would said, it was like a dream. Joy was like we were dreaming. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion or the people of God, we were like those who dreamed. They said, it was like that dream you never wanted to wake up from. That's what joy is like. They said, our mouths are full of laughter. Joy is laughter. Joy is just that kind of giddy laughter, like everything is okay. Everything is good. And they said their tongues, their mouths were full of shouts of joy. Now, my question to you, before we briefly look at these things, is do you want this? Do you want joy? Did you know you could ask for it? You know you're allowed to ask for it? I don't know if we've ever looked in the mirror and actually asked the question, do I want it? I think we're just after it and we're settling for something less than it. But I want to ask you straight up, do you want to be joyful like this? Do you want joy that lasts and isn't vulnerable? Well, my question to you, the follow-up question to that is, do you know that God has literally re-engineered all of history to restore the fortunes of his people? That's the language in this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, in verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. He's not talking about give us the lotto jackpot. He's saying, make the world like it's supposed to be. Make me like I'm supposed to be again. Where I know my God. Where I love people. Where the world is set right again. Did you know that that is what God is doing in history? You hear these words like gospel or Christianity. You're like, what does that even mean? What it means is that God has entered into his history. And he has turned everything around to set it all right again. Jesus is the hinge on which all of that turns. He is the way. He is the way that God makes everything right again. And so do you know that God is more committed to your joy than you could ever dream of being committed to your own joy? And do you know that he's literally pulling all of the world towards a place of joy? Uh, If you're like me, your heart really likes what I'm saying, but it's also suspicious of it. Because I bet, we, we didn't ask this question today in our surveys, but I bet if we asked, uh, what words do you think of when you hear the word, the name God, or the, when you think of the person God, I don't think joy would be at the top of the list. I think powerful might be. I think some people might say malicious or mean-spirited or why does he let this happen or let that happen. Some people might say loving or gracious, but I don't think many people would say joyful, that God is joy. He's infinite joy. Because I think we think God is a sour-faced deity who at best barely tolerates you. So we have a hard time believing that God is the source of joy. And so I think that's why Psalm 126 was given to us. It was yet another piece of evidence to persuade our unbelieving hearts that God is indeed willing and able 
to make you joyful. I said there was three things that you have to do to find this joy, though. The first is you have to know what happened yesterday. Here's what I mean by that. This was not a happy moment. This is a happy song, right? It sounds like a happy song. But it wasn't a happy moment when it was written. And it wasn't a happy moment when it was sung in the life of God's people in Israel back in the day. Because here's what was happening. They were in spiritual exile because of the own junk, the own crap that they had done, their own sin, their own foolishness, their own stupidity. God disciplined them for that. They were sent into exile. Then they were brought back, but nothing was ever really the same. It was like if you moved back to your hometown, all your friends have moved away. All the favorite restaurants you liked to go to are all gone. Everything was just like kind of lame now. That's what life for them was like. God felt very far away. That's where these people were when they wrote this. Life was rotten. How'd they feel in this moment? Well, they kind of give us, they tip their hat in verse 4. If the people are asking for God to restore their fortunes like streams in the Negev, that means they felt like a dry stream in the Negev. Now, here's the thing about this. I know you don't know that word. It's 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 a river in the desert in Israel. The word in Hebrew means parched or dry. What he means here is, Lord... We're like an arroyo in New Mexico, and it hasn't rained for 11 months. You pass over these every day. They're dry sand. They're cracked mud. They're parched. They're rocky. There's no life in them except the most resilient little weeds. That's what Israel, that's what the person who wrote this feels like when they wrote it. Right? Remember, we're talking about joy. Joy in the arroyo. Joy in the dry riverbed where it's parched and you feel like you haven't tasted fresh water in a long, long time. That's why there's talking of weeping and tears here in the same sentence where he talks about joy. But here's what these people had really going for them. Here's where they had a leg up. This psalm, this song is evidence that they were doing the hard work of remembering what had happened yesterday. And your joy depends on whether you're able to do this or not. These people were remembering what happened yesterday. And yeah, I said remembering takes work. Do you know the difference between nostalgia and remembering? They're pretty similar. Nostalgia or sentimentality, that's what happens when it's kind of like a good friend unexpectedly drops in for a visit. And you stop what you're doing and you're just caught up in the moment. You love it. Remembering is like a friend who moved away and you have to do the work. Of keeping in touch. Nostalgia comes to you. That's why like when you're going through the Facebook feed. And it's like the memory pops up. Like two years ago you did this. You're like oh that's awesome. And you get all warm inside. You want to call those friends. That's nostalgia. That takes no work. It happens. Remembering takes enormous work. Brittany and I were talking the other day. About what it's like to have all of your friends. And all of your family. Across the continent of North America. We're both from Georgia. And Anna, most of Anna's friends are back in Georgia. We have to work. To keep in touch with our friends. You have to work to remember. Even big, huge, awesome stuff. You have to work at it. If you leave it to nostalgia, you'll forget it. It'll grow stale. We have to put preservatives in our memories. Like, just like you got to put preservatives in food. Any kind of food will spoil if it doesn't have preservatives in it. Your memory, your ability to remember, even the gospel, even God, even his work, will spoil. Unless you put preservatives in it. Here's what I mean by that. Little habits, little rituals, 
that remind you of who God is and what he's done. What I, look, here's what I mean. These people wrote a song to remember what God had done. And they sang it regularly. Because it reminded them of who God is and what he had done for them before. They are literally singing, this is what happened yesterday. God restored our fortunes. He heard our cry. He didn't leave us dead in exile. When I was far from him and said, Lord, show yourself, he showed himself. And now I have to sing about it. I have to do the work of showing up, gathering together with other people, singing about it. Kind of like what we do every Tuesday, what we do every Sunday. That is the work of remembering. And it is essential to joy. You cannot be joyful. You cannot have lasting joy without the work of remembering what God has done yesterday. You have to know. That's what the whole first half of this psalm is, is what God did yesterday. And so it requires us to rehearse and remember the past. Now, what do we remember? We remember that God has done great things. You should be rehearsing. We must be rehearsing in our, in our small groups, in our Bible studies, in your lunch and coffee with other people, in your strolls down I-Mall, in your texts, in your Facebook messaging, in, in everything. We should be reminding each other of our story and their story. How God has been so faithful to you. He has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. He heard you. When you were his enemy and asked for grace, he responded to you and gave it to you. The reason some of our hearts are so dry and cracked and unbending is because we don't remember anything. That's why Christianity is so boring to you. That's why it feels like excruciating work to get up on a Sunday morning. Because you don't remember Remembering takes work. Remembering takes work. It's not just nostalgia that comes to us. God has done great things. He delivered his people. He's delivered us. And we have to remember. So my question to you is, are you working to remember and to rehearse, to bring back to memory through whatever practice that is, reading your Bible, talking to your friends, coming to RUF, going to church? Are you working to remember who God is and what he has done for you? And for all of his other people through scripture. Or are you refusing to look to the past and you're saying, God, do another magic trick. Prove to me you love me. Prove to me you care for me. Prove to me you're in this with me. Prove to me you're here. Do you understand how offensive that is? It's like yelling at the brain surgery who literally just saved your life and saying, what are you going to do for me next? And he's like, let's look at the past few hours when single-handedly, I've restored your life. Let's celebrate that. Let's remember that. So, are you rehearsing God's greatest hits in your own life and in your friends' lives and in the people's lives that we see in the Bible? If so, you're on your way to joy. You're on your way to true and lasting joy. The second point is, if you want to have this true and lasting joy, you have to know what's going to happen tomorrow. You've got to know what's going to happen in the future. You have to. Isn't the biggest thief of happiness and joy in your life uncertainty? The reason you can't be joyful is because you don't know how you're going to do on those three term papers that you've got to come up with in the next seven days. You don't know if you're going to get the internship call back. You don't know if your dating relationship is going to end in marriage or going to end in a breakup or whatever else. Isn't uncertainty not knowing what tomorrow brings? Isn't that the biggest thief of your joy? And so the only way around that is you have to know the future. You have to know what tomorrow is going to bring. That's what, this, that's, what the, that's what this psalm shows us. 
The Bible is a record of God's reputation so that you can begin to predict how he's going to act next. You do this with your friends and your parents too. There are certain friends you call and there are certain friends you don't call. There are certain friends you share your life with and you're honest with about your struggles and there are certain friends you're not honest with that you don't open up to. There are certain people you want to be around with. There are certain people you don't want to be around. And the reason why is because the record, the history of y'all's relationship together has proven what you can expect from them, right? And so if this person has been for you this time and that time and this time and this time, guess who you're going to call the next time? You can begin to predict how they're going to respond to you. And all these other people who let you down, let you down, let you down, came through for you, let you down. You can't predict them anymore, right? You don't go to those people. God has filled the Bible with pictures and stories and historical events of him coming through for his people. Because you're supposed to read it and I'm supposed to read it and say, I know what he's going to do next now. I come to him and I say, I'm broken. I'm desperate. I have nothing to give to you. I know what he's going to say. He says he won't turn me away. I've seen him a thousand times before receive broken, sinful, guilty, foolish people. I know he'll do it for me too. That's what the Bible's supposed to do for you. You say, I don't know if I'm going to get the internship, but I've seen God provide time and time and time and time and time and time and time again for all of his people. And he says he's going to provide for me so I can be joyful even though it's been 13 days and I haven't got a call. That's how this stuff's supposed to work. That's what knowing the future is like. And it, the more you know the past and God and his people, the more you know the future. And so if you see the future, you'll see joy rising. Just like if you see the past, you'll see joy rising. You're on your way to true and lasting joy if you're able to see the past and the future. That's when you know you're close. That's why what Aben read earlier is really important. That's the ultimate, do you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow? God will come and dwell with his people. There will be no more sadness, no more pain, no more mourning, no more feeling distant from God, no more death. No more unbelief, no more struggle with sin, no more things aren't the way they should be. No more regret, no more shame, no more guilt, no more stuckness. That's what tomorrow holds. And that's the final point. That's the final thing this psalm says. It talks about all this agrarian, agricultural language of sowing and reaping and sheaves. We don't use that language. What he's talking about is are you working because you know what tomorrow is going to bring? And so it's not just that true and lasting joy will come to you if you know the past and know the future, but you get to work now because you know what tomorrow is going to bring. Here's my question to you. If you're a farmer and I told you this, this is going to, I'm guaranteeing you, I know this, I've seen the future. This is going to be a bumper crop this year. Biggest harvest you've ever had. Will that farmer be more motivated to persevere when the hard, long, droughty summer months come. Because he knows the outcome, right? Will he be more motivated to push through the difficulty or less motivated? Will he be humming joyfully even in the sweltering heat of the summer when he's driving that combine through the fields? Because he knows, I know payday's coming. I know the bumper crop's coming. Even if I can't see it, even if bugs get in it, whatever. No matter the circumstances, I have been told by someone who knows the future that this is going to be the biggest harvest ever. I think he'd be more motivated. I think he would get up in the morning with, uh, with a lot more joy. And so my question to you on this last point is would you be more motivated if God who sees the future told you the future? He told you what tomorrow is going to bring. Would it motivate you more during the seasons of drought 
or less? Would you persevere better or worse if you knew what the outcome of all of this is going to be? Would you fight sin more aggressively if you knew that one day you will be fully set free from it? If you knew that already Jesus is pulling you to a place of freedom, would you fight more or would you fight less? Like the farmer, would you get out of bed more joyful or more depressed if you knew the ending already? Those are the kind of questions that this raises. I think the reason we don't sow, which means invest in other people, pursue God, which means investing in the kingdom of God, laying down your life for other people, laying down your life for the gospel. I think the reason we don't do more of that is you don't think there's a payoff afterwards, and I don't either. You think you're going to sow all of these seeds and there's going to be no harvest, so what's the point? You will never lay down your life for Jesus or other people if you think there's not resurrection on the other side of it. You just won't. Who willingly walks to their own death when there's no payoff at all? Nobody does. We don't either. It is only when you begin to know that the harvest comes, that we sow, that we act, that we live by faith now. So I want to conclude with this because one of the themes we've been talking about all semester long is the Psalms aren't just about us. The Psalms point to Jesus. How does Psalm 126 point to Jesus? Where is he in this passage? What does this have to do with him? Well, here's how I think that happens. I don't think it was just the Israelites who found themselves in a mess of their own making yet again. I think that's the predicament all of humanity has found itself in, us included. A mess of our own making, a catastrophic mess of our own making. Dry, parched riverbeds. Because we have spent our lives on ourselves on these one-night stands with cheap happinesses. We've gotten into messes of our own making. And our lives and our souls have become like these dry riverbeds. But here's the difference. This is the God who restores fortunes. That's what he calls himself here. This is the God who brings torrents of water through those dry riverbeds, even in Las Cruces. And he says he does it in our souls too. When we pray for this restoration, he will bring it in his timing. There will be a harvest. There will be a harvest. And so we can press into that. God didn't forget the Israelites in their exile, in their death, and in their sin. And he hasn't forgotten you in your exile, your distance, your alienation, your guilt, your sin. He hasn't forgotten you there. He has remembered you. And he has put joy and laughter even into the mouths of his former enemies. That's pretty astounding when that sinks down. And so whether you're a Christian or not, whether you feel dry and dead or not, if you pray to God to restore you, he will do it. But he will do it through Jesus. Jesus is the person through whom God will restore your fortunes. Because Jesus is the rich one. Jesus is the joyful one. And so will you tonight acknowledge your need of restoration, that you need this God desperately, that you need restoring, that you're dry, that you have no, no hope in yourself? Will you acknowledge that? Will you be honest? Will you say it out loud? If you want unshakable joy, it must come from an unshakable source. 
The only unshakable source that will never change is the gospel, the good news of what God has done for his enemies, guilty, shameful sinners on their behalf through Jesus. That is unshakable. It will never change. And the promise is on the table tonight for the taking. Joy is on the table tonight for the taking. Do you want it? I pray you do. I hope you do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, joy is here for the taking. You have literally come to earth to open up the doors to eternal joy, eternal life. Of life with our God forever as we were designed to have it. We were made for joy. We pray that uh, even tonight through your word, you would become predictable to us. We would see so many times how you've acted, how you've responded. And we would begin to connect the dots and say, I know what you're going to do next. I know what you'll say when I ask you again for mercy, when I ask you again for life, when I ask you again for water. Jesus, let these Psalms now and in the years to come shape us and form us and make us more like you. Amen.